You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. will be a show I know absolutely nothing about. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, welcome to episode 40 of the only show that the host advice will get you killed. (laughs) 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 And uh, I also don't know a lot about today's topic, but I do know I know more than you do. You do. You do. And uh, I'm I'm definitely curious, and I know our listeners uh, are as well. Uh, You had posted in the Facebook group a little bit ago um mm-hmm. if anyone had questions and it would it went wild with questions yeah it's something that we've seemed to approach yes. at times on on the uh, previous episodes of the podcast but we never really got into it other than saying oh yeah this is something you can eat yeah but um well my one experience <laughs> we haven't really dove into it fully and the reasoning is my one experience is and I, i've mentioned it before your father asked me if winter berries were edible and i told him yes and they're they're not so it's you know i'm not someone to give advice on this topic i should i should stay away from it because i realize i don't know but i'm gonna put my learning cap on today and i have a cap on anyway because we have no heat so (laughs) we just happen to walk in the office to no heat today and uh, i'm glad this one isn't on video because i'm I'm sitting here like all (laughs) shivering and muddled up but uh i have my learning cap on and i am ready to absorb yeah me too it's it's a topic i've really uh like we've said before my brother is really into um i don't want to say living off the land but but finding things in the woods that he can consume and uh i've always wanted to take that step but uh, i'm not the best with plan id all the time so i'd never really felt confident enough to get into it so i'm ready to yeah. learn yeah and my my I've, I've mentioned before too my fiance and her mother both having grown up in poland yeah. you know for, having a farm and forage for mushrooms and it was part of their culture and you know she's kind of lost that so she's mm-hmm. interested yeah. i'm interested it's perfect time yeah so with that i want to say today's guest is a hall of fame forager uh, author and all around just interesting guy just reading up on him on the internet and hearing things about him just i'm captivated by by everything he has going on we're really honored to have on today uh sam thayer so sam i'm honored to be here <laughs> oh but i gotta ask you something yeah. um I- i'm getting you guys mixed up because i can't see your faces <laughs> um but who is who is saying that he has no experience foraging uh that's fran it's me yeah fran okay so have you ever picked blueberries before i you know what i have picked low bush blueberries before <laughs> That's that's yeah, one see, see. because it's something we sell, and then I'm confident on my ID. And I actually had kids picking it on a scout camping trip, and I got yelled at for having them. <laughs> for so for, here's here's the fascinating thing that I find is that the people um, when people gather something uh, growing wild to eat, they don't consider that foraging. Mm-hmm. So if I ask a group of 100 people, you know, uh, uh, maybe a somewhat random crowd, how many of you forage for wild food? And 23 hands go up out of 100. And then I say, if I'm around here, I'll say, how many of you have picked wild blueberries? And every hand goes up. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's more people picking blueberries than foraging. Well, how is that possible? Because they don't consider it foraging because if they do it, it's normal. 
Yeah. And foraging sounds weird. Um, and, and when I got into foraging, it was when I was a little kid. It was because I was hungry. And it wasn't foraging. It was just food. It was just a way to get food I had discovered. Um, and, you know, I didn't even learn the term foraging pertaining to this activity of mine until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and I always I found it kind of offensive for the first five or six years. Like it suggested... <laughs> aimless wandering, searching for food. And I was like, no, uh-uh, I know where this stuff is. I'm just going to get it. So I would tell people I was a gatherer, or I would yeah. say I'm berry picking. I didn't use the term foraging until recently when the media decided that it was like the term for this activity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think the only two things I've ever picked wild and eaten are blueberry, low bush blueberry and blackberry when I was out in Oregon on business. There was wild uh, blackberry uh, neighboring one of the farms we were on, and, and someone ID'd and said, you should try these. We eat these all the time. That was probably the only thing, but I didn't do it for – because I was hungry, I did it to try it. Like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I know this, and I know I can eat it. Let's let's try it. But I've never done it to sustain myself or to – like to take it home. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well, it still counts. It still counts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, my, my fiance, I've told this story before. Growing up in Poland, her grandfather taught her how to forage for mushrooms. And one of the interesting tactics were they didn't know all the mus- mushrooms, but he taught her that if you're not sure if it's poisonous or not, stick the tip of your tongue on the gills of the mushroom. Just like – not lick it, but put your tongue there, and if it tingles, then it's poisonous. Stay away from it. Like that was their barometer for <laughs> for foraging mushrooms. You know, um, I recommend avoiding any such simplified rule yes. like that. But yeah. what's interesting is that um, uh, rural people develop little folk tests like that, um, but – if you actually look into it, it's usually more specific than that. Like, for example, say her grandfather, a uh, rural Polander, uh, said that, right? Yes. But there was another mushroom. There may be, maybe you went to put your tongue on a mushroom, and he would say, no, 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 don't put your tongue on that one, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the rule is not as broadly applied as it sounds like. Um, kind of like when somebody gives you instructions for something, and it's real brief instructions, and they, they forgot about 16 contingencies that you're going to trip over. <laughs> Um, so when we hear these rules, the person actually foraging wasn't. This wasn't the only rule they had. This was a rule that they had that they applied in a situation, and it got kind of carried on into the next generation who wasn't doing that as as this kind of simplified mm-hmm. rule. But if you apply a simplified rule like that broadly, eventually it's going to get you into trouble. Maybe not the first time or. You know, but eventually it'll it'll get you into trouble. You know, and it's it's funny that sometimes you don't realize that until you're doing it. We're, we're doing a practice at work where we're we're writing out standard operating procedures, and I I picked one purposefully, thinking it would be the easiest one to do, and I could describe it in ten steps. And I'm about forty steps in, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I forgot about all these things. It's not it's really not as simple as I think. I, in my head, I think it's simple. But if I had to explain it to someone, it's really nowhere near that simple. There's a lot of a lot of factors that I didn't even think about. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that your uh, fiance is uh, from Poland uh, because here in the Midwest, there's a large Polish community in the Chicago area. Okay, and I I get a lot of uh, Polish people in 
my uh, edible plant workshops, and I'm just to apply some broad generalizations here, they are the best students. Um, <laughs> and it's, been, it's really nice. And a, lot, and a lot of times they've taught me some things that, that uh, I didn't know. Um, and, uh, but also I had a, a great moment with one uh, Polish woman who's been to a number of my workshops talking about the cow parsnip, the native cow parsnip, okay. which there's a very close relative in Europe which is uh, goes by the name uh, borscht or something very similar yeah. in Polish. Yeah. And um, she said, no, no, that's a soup. I said, yeah, but the soup is named for this plant. And, of course, we're in the modern age. She said, well, I'm going to text my grandma in Poland right now. <laughs> and so she texted her grandma, is there a plant called borscht? <laughs> you know? And she didn't get a response for like six minutes, and we're in the middle of the class, and dings, and she says, Oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, picture of the, the the European cow parsnip, which is fl- only slightly different. Um, it actually does. I, I found it growing feral uh, in New York City two years ago. The European cow parsnip. Oh wow! But um, it, it's really similar to our native cow parsnip. I I, I I found it interesting with with Agatha because growing up in communist Poland, they they definitely were more in touch with the land because they had to be. They depended on it. Um, and they had a forest that was part of their property, so that was part of their everyday, you know. And it's something that I think a lot of us have never had to rely on. So you don't you don't think about it, or you don't know as much. Yeah, and and that's why there's been an explosion in um, um, books written about foraging, right? So mm-hmm. it's the opposite of what we think. But when some when everybody does something, there's nothing written about the topic. Um, and then as it becomes less common, then there will be things written about it. So you can't go to the store right now and you can't buy a book called How to Drive a Car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because everybody knows how to do that for the most part. It's, it's part of our common cultural knowledge. But uh, similarly, as fewer and fewer people cook at home, there's been an unbelievable proliferation of cookbooks. Um, so some people think that foraging is becoming more popular, and that's why we're seeing a lot of media coverage and, and books about it. But actually, I think the opposite trend has been going on steadily now for you know the last few thousand years, um, and it's still continuing, uh, but we're seeing more and more uh, media coverage of it. Yeah, I, I think with the, the pandemic, a lot of our listeners had questions because they wanted to start – doing more sustainable things on their own property or, or just be able to fend for themselves. And even, I, I listen, I've mentioned before, I listen to a lot of hunting podcasts. Actually, how I became familiar with Sam was through a hunting podcast where they mentioned he written a part in a book. Um, they were they were pushing. Um, but the, the hunting population has grown during the pandemic because more people, oh, the supermarket doesn't have as much food. I live in a rural, rural or suburban area where I can hunt and maybe I could source some of my own food and that's kind of even fueled my own um, pursuit into the foraging aspect with plants is I hunt I fish I dabble with uh, like blueberries and blackberries and um, some of the things I know I can consume but I'm really interested in the concept of okay this is a deer I shot and these were the foods that it was around and possibly eating in the wild as well. I'm actually pairing those instead of your regular baked potato and broccoli yeah. or whatever you have in the freezer or <laughs> fridge at home. I want to actually source that whole meal and say, hey, this was from the woods that's right behind our house. Everything on the on the plate was from there. 
and uh, and that's what we found with our listeners as well. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned in the, in the preamble, is it's kind of daunting when you don't know all the plants. Yeah. Um, and like, where do you start? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, and the the great thing about foraging is uh, you don't need to know all the plants. Okay. You just need to know one plant and uh, the plant you're going to eat. That's the only one you need to know. <laughs> and um, and so I, I will often tell people that learning foraging is like learning a language. There's an incredible amount to it, and it takes years to actually become fluent. On the other hand, it's not like a language in that if you know one word in Japanese and you go to Japan, you're, you're not going to be able to communicate, right? <laughs> but if you know one food, you can eat that food. There's no limit to how you can apply that knowledge. Um, so I tell people the place to start is a place you frequent. Um, maybe your backyard. Maybe it's a woods where you go camping frequently. Okay. Um, a park you often walk your dog, wherever. Just someplace you frequent. And the, the plant you start with is a plant you see a lot. Um, and then you, learn, you identify it. And that might take you a while. Identifying plants for somebody who's just getting into uh, plant identification can be daunting. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's daunting things in life. It's not supposed to always be easy. Just do it. Um, and, and you can, of course, ask a knowledgeable person if you have a knowledgeable person you trust that you can ask. But it's better to get some resources, um, get a few books, and actually go through the process yourself of identifying that plant. It might take you a couple of years. If you can't identify this one you picked out, then pick out another one and try to identify a different one that you see frequently. Um, and when you learn its name then you find out if it's edible. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some people uh, tell me they only want to learn the edible plants, and that's like saying I only want to learn uh, beautiful words because I want to write poetry, so I don't want to learn the boring words, just the poetic ones. You've got to learn the whole language to write poetry. Yeah. So if you're going to identify you know, edible plants, you need to learn something about plants. So just find one and identify it. If it turns out that it's not edible, you didn't hurt yourself one bit. Then just find another one and identify that one, and you're not going to have to go far until you find something that's edible. Yeah. And so start that way. Or start with the plant you already know. Maybe you know what a black walnut is. Mm. You've heard that they're edible. You've just never done anything with it. Just get off your butt and figure out how to make something out of black walnuts. Yeah. Um, so you start with one plant, and you start in a place you frequent. You know, it's, And then it's not so daunting. Yeah, You know, it's, it's funny. I, I'm... I, I'm pretty confident in my ability to ID plants until I have to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> then all of a sudden my confidence goes out the window. But but at the same time, it's we're living in an age where it's almost as easy – it's almost too easy to identify plants yeah. with all the apps out there. You don't have to collect samples, bring it back to your textbook, or lug the textbooks into the woods to, to go through that key and figure yeah. out what it is. Now you can take a picture and depending on how much you trust your app – you know what it is right then and there. Yeah. But, um, but it's funny. Black walnut is actually one of the first trees I learned because I learned that when you throw them at each other and they hit your clothes and you have them on your hands, <laughs> they stain <laughs> the tan and stain your clothes and your hands. So that was. And they could hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do hurt. <laughs> yeah, I, I threw one at my cousin Katie when I was 10. I didn't mean to hit her. I was just trying to throw it at the, the, the chicken shed at my grandma's house and I wasn't that coordinated and I hit her right in the head. Oh. It's just traumatic. She doesn't oh. even remember it. 
But oh, I remember it. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I felt so horrible. Um, it was, black walnut was one of the first trees that I learned, but I learned it as a food. My mm-hmm. grandpa liked to eat them. Um, and I was probably five years old when he taught me a black walnut, and I never forgot. I still eat wow. them to this day. Literally, I ate some this day. Wow. You know, and it's um, it, it, it's funny even not just – you know, when I think of foraging, I think immediately of fruit or nuts. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the first thing my my brain kind of goes to. But um, I was out with my fiancé at a park, and I can't remember what tree was blooming, but she's like, oh, these blooms are edible. Like we used to take these and eat these blooms. That's something I hadn't even considered as far – you know, even though I had known that, it's it's something that my brain hadn't even processed. You know, everything you might be able to buy and eat, like every class of produce item, mm-hmm. there's like 30 times that diversity in wild plants. So mm-hmm. we eat like flower buds, right, of yeah. broccoli. Yeah. Um, but as, as, as far as – flower bud clusters just before they open that you could eat in that you could forage in your area there's at least 30 you know yeah i mean there's just tons of them you know we eat uh, as far as shoot vegetables like we eat asparagus and that's about it i guarantee you there's there's probably more than 30 there's probably more like 70 different shoot vegetables that you could eat just in in your area so yeah the 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 diversity of what you can eat is remarkable um but I want to also get back to that thing mentioning apps. I don't know today if there's any apps that I would trust. I highly <laughs> yeah, doubt it. Yeah. You got So, so one thing about foraging is it does require this level of certainty, um, and I call this contradictory confidence. This is the confidence that you, if someone told you you were wrong, mm-hmm. you would contradict them, right? So yeah. I use the banana example. I tell people it has to pass the banana test. Like, let's say you were eating a banana, right? Okay. And I said, hey, hey. I'm a botanist, and I'm telling you that's not a banana. That's a deadly false banana. You'd laugh at me. Yeah. You'd tell me I was full of crap. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and so that's where you would need to be to eat mm. anything. And you may think, well, but bananas are so distinct. Actually, the cultivated plants we eat are no more distinct than the wild plants we don't eat. It's just that they don't look distinct and familiar because we have not yet gone through that process of familiar, familiarizing ourselves with the plants. So um, if I was to uh, have a head of iceberg lettuce mm-hmm. and green cabbage, anybody who's grown up making coleslaw and salad isn't going to confuse those plants at all. It's, it's inconceivable that they would accidentally make a you know, shredded uh, cabbage salad <laughs> thinking it was iceberg lettuce. It's not going to happen. And yet I could bring the same two things to a group of 14-year-old boys I didn't know this because I did this, uh, and I had I had like three out of out of forty uh, some that could tell the two apart. Wow! Right? And people think they look exactly the same; they're not familiar with them. And so this is when you hear that two wild plants look are lookalikes. Um, they're almost never more alike than cabbage and lettuce. Wow. Um, so everybody can make every relevant distinction you know uh everybody has it within them you just have to gain the familiarity which is not instant and you so there's really a process you need to go through with each plant you learn but once you learn it you have it forever you are never going to go eat a blackberry and be like wait a second 
maybe this is a deadly false blackberry. Right? It's just not going to happen. <laughs> no. And but foraging does require that additional level of confidence, and it requires some some cognitive work on the part of the doer. No app is going to do it, and no mm-hmm. book is going to do it without you being a robust participant in the process. Um, and so this is something that a person who grows up foraging knows, and, and they know it from, you know, f- from so early in life that they don't really consider how big of a thing it is that they know. But for people who have foraged very little, it's hard to wrap your brain around that like that level of confidence is clicking in. I'll give you an example of, of, of how powerful this is. During the Lewis and Clark expedition, uh, when they were returning from the West Coast, these 30 or so uh, men, they, uh, they were very hungry, and they were trading with the native people for the dried roots of three carrot family root vegetables that they were subsisting on for months meat and these dried root vegetables okay. and one person in camp Sacagawea knew how to identify those mm-hmm. and she was gathering them around camp every single day for her people in her in her lodging right okay. um, and the, the, the leaders Lewis and Clark they would not allow any of their white boys to go out and gather those plants because they were afraid they would kill themselves or somebody and so they literally they went miles every single day. They sent out two men, 20, 30, 40 miles on horseback to trade a village, super valuable stuff. They took all the buttons off all their coats to trade for this food because they were afraid that they would get it wrong. The mm-hmm. 16-year-old girl was going to get it right because she had grown up thinking that way, but he didn't trust a single one of his men to gather those plants. So wow. you do need this level of confidence that we are not accustomed to acting with. Mm-hmm. But in, that, in our in our, this day and age, but the the payout is incredible. You know, for me, the one takeaway I had from the time I picked wild blackberries is that it ruined blackberries for me. Any time that I buy blackberries from a store, I keep hoping that they taste the way they taste it when I had them off the bush, and they never do. It it completely ruined it for me. But I keep trying. It's been it's been twenty years, and I still haven't come close to that. Yeah, the payout is the best food on earth, both flavor-wise, nutritionally, and I would say like spiritually, like how you feel when you eat them and go through that process. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. So, did, yeah, so did... I, I, we have a lot of questions for you? So yeah. I want to move along a little bit. Sure. And I know this is another like trick question for you, but we wanted to know what's the best season for foraging. Um, and I'm sure that's kind of probably the, like you can do it in every season. So maybe you even share some of the highlights of each season with us. Sure. I mean, for for me, fall is definitely like the peak of my foraging year. Okay. Um, so I mean, spring is a time of greens and shoot vegetables. You know, very early spring is a great time for root vegetables. But in the spring and early summer, I am foraging just for stuff I'm eating that day. You know, okay. and I eat a fair amount of leafy greens, and in general, I would say the easiest way that you can improve your health and save money at the same time with foraging is to learn like 10 or 15 common leafy greens in your area because we don't eat enough leafy greens in our diet. And uh, 
I don't need to go into detail in terms of why, but that's an incredible way to improve your health and save money and get the best leafy greens in the world. We, we, but when you get to midsummer, you start getting fruit ripening. <clears throat> and we start to collect a little bit more fruit, <clears throat> uh, save a little bit of stuff for the winter. Um, by late summer, when we're picking blueberries, we, we're starting to put up food for the year. I mean, we our family goes on blueberry picking expeditions. Last year, we froze or canned or dried 78 gallons of wild blueberries. That's a lot of fruit. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. And then, uh, uh, and it's like, it's kind of like this steadily increasing, it reaches a crescendo like in October. Like, there's more fruit. The fruit gets bigger. Like, you get stuff like wild plums and persimmons and apples and pawpaws in the fall so all the big fruit ripens in the fall and then you get nuts like the big crops and we collect lots of acorns and hickory nuts and walnuts and butternuts um and then uh um and then basically i'm foraging like crazy until either the ground freezes solid or the snow covers the ground Okay. And then winter is my time for processing, right? right. Like cracking nuts, I'm shelling nuts, I'm grinding flowers, I'm you know doing stuff like that. So you know foraging is half gathering and half cooking. Mm-hmm. So the cooking, the preparation part doesn't slow down at all in the winter. So I don't really feel like there's a big foraging lull in the winter. I do go through a period where I'm like, man, I want to pick some some leafy greens. <laughs> or, you know, I'm just, you know, there's a few teas we can gather in the winter, but not much to gather. Um, and then probably our biggest, most intense harvest of the year is maple syrup, which is the end of winter, mm-hmm. and then the cycle kind of starts again. So, uh, but um, at your latitude, there's a little bit to collect through most of the winter. You get down to a place like Houston, you know, Tallahassee, whatever, the southern, in the deep south, you, winter's actually a great time for foraging a lot of leafy greens. Hmm. Um, so it's slower in the winter, and there's even quite a few winter fruits that ripen in the south. I, I didn't even think of syrup, and that's something yeah. that actually your dad does. He yeah, does they're birch boiling syrup. Uh, yeah. um, red maple sap today. Yeah. Yeah. They got a, maybe 10 gallons, and we don't make a lot. We only make a little bit that we share amongst our family. But, um, yeah, I never even thought about that as a, a foraging practice. Yeah, either did I. But, either did I. Yeah, it's too, no, too normal. Yeah. 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 weird. You know, yeah. That, that, that's just totally normal. Yeah. And I just wanted to real quick, and I know you touched on it and said we don't need to go on the reasons why, but the leafy greens, you know, and that's something that we've touched about on on numerous episodes of the podcast is, you know, plants are the, the resource for capturing the sun's energy, and, and by eating those, you're getting that direct transference of energy from the plant. So it's they're, – they're extremely important. Go ahead, yeah, yeah, and, you know, human beings instinctively try to – increase our calorie density because if you ever forage for a hundred percent of your food you'll realize that it's actually hard to fit enough calories into your digestive system Mm. um and so that is actually the hard the hard part with foraging isn't finding enough calories it's fitting enough into your intestines um (laughs) over the long term yeah and so greens are not calorie dense and so they they come historically you know evolutionarily we're a really important part of the human diet Mm-hmm. Um, because they're super available and super labor efficient, right? But we instinctively look for the high calorie density foods, and then we exclude the low calorie density but highly nutritious foods like leafy greens um, or any fruit with a very strong flavor, which usually indicates you know high levels of antioxidants and anthocyanins and vitamins and minerals. And so we instinctively avoid the best foods for us, um, it, and and so. 
oh, we need to like override that a little bit and look at the longer picture because you start eating leafy greens a lot. You realize that you feel pretty darn good when you eat a lot of them. And I don't mean yeah. tons and tons, but you know, eat them every day. Yeah. And, so one of the things you you kind of mentioned, even you said you had um, black walnut today, but how much of your, I guess, weekly diet, monthly diet, yearly diet is things that you've actually forged, or I guess you could say bartered for, that were forged someplace? So, you know, I don't really keep track of that, um, like, real precisely. Mm. I have at times, but it gets boring, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's probably half um, wow. of our diet, you know? And um, sometimes we go for periods just because we want to challenge ourselves and say, hey, let's eat just wild for this week or whatever. Um, I think we got one coming up this spring. We're going to do that for, for a little bit. Mm. Or, you know, we raise a few chickens and stuff, and we have ducks or yeah. eggs, so okay. we might do just like the no grocery store for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, it's and it's been that way steady about half my diet for more than 20 years. Um, wow. And, and, and it's, you know, I started foraging when I was a little kid. Um, so I feel like it's really – uh, it's really easy to replace like a good portion of your diet. The hard parts are the cheap foods, like the starchy foods, the mm-hmm. beans, the wheat, the rice. Um, those are the things that are, are hard to supplant with, with wild gathered stuff. Now I know this, this is going to take us off topic just a, a, a tad and we can steer back, but you were mentioning that, that cooking is a large part of foraging throughout the year. Are there, are there favorite recipes that you have? Is there something like in particular that that you make from something that you forge? You're like, this is better than than anything else that you can get. You know, so sometimes I have trouble giving people recipes because the food that's in my pantry is so different enough from the food in mm-hmm. other people's pantry yeah. that they often can't even relate to what I like, what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, like something you know, pretty simple. Like we'll do you know wild rice maple syrup and hickory nuts as a breakfast cereal mm-hmm. wow. and it doesn't okay. get any better than that wow. um and real wild rice that actually tastes good you know by itself where you don't have to dilute it because it's you know tastes kind of musty but actual wild rice that has that good fresh grain flavor really great but then there's other cereals i could say like i my like absolute favorite breakfast cereal is mm-hmm. like Wapato. Well, nobody, nobody has wapato, but I can tell you, I, I, you know, I, 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 I dry it, like I, I crum, I boil it. It's a root. It's a tuber. I okay. boil it and I crumble it and then I roast it in small pieces. Now after it's roasted, I'll put it through a coarse flour grinder and it's like a cornmeal-like texture. Then I rehydrate that like a hot cereal. Um, and then I like to put, I like it with wild strawberries in it. Um, but any, you know, raspberries, blueberries, whatever. A little bit of milk, the only non-wild thing I put in there, and you don't have okay. to have it in there, and some hickory nuts, and oh my goodness, that is like the like the ultimate breakfast cereal. That, that sounds good. Um, that sounds really good, yeah. actually. Now my stomach's starting to rumble a little bit. And that's a um, yeah, but you can't, you can't envision it because you've never had, you've probably never had wapato in your mouth. That I, flavor, this like sweet corn, with a touch of grapefruit like what on earth you can't compare it to anything like like that's why i describe it and people think well that doesn't sound right it's like it doesn't sound right but man it's right it's perfectly right well it's it's funny now that you're we're saying this and i was saying you know my experience is low as far as foraging but i'm thinking now all the things that i've eaten here because of working here like i've had duck potato 
um, yeah. okay. that, that Tom's father had, had uh, harvested and brought in. Um, Tom made uh, fritters out of um, elderberry flowers, you know, and I've had that here. So, yeah, there's definitely – now that I'm thinking about it, I've had more than I, I thought I did. Yeah, I tried to tell you in the beginning of the conversation <laughs> that the lines, are, the lines are more blurry than you think. As long as you let them be blurry, then, then uh, who knows how much you've had. Because everything you eat was – wild and foraged somewhere mm-hmm. at some point yeah it's now given that like and and this is something you grew up doing are there historical references that you've used or, or places that you go to check to see how it was used in the past like how native americans had used it or or if something was usable before beforehand do you do you reference some of this stuff as you go into territory that you're unfamiliar with Oh, I, I, that's like, I spent so much of my time doing that. It's a blast. It's, uh, I have a whole like library with like a thousand books and thousands of research papers and stuff. So, I mean, I use, you know, the, the starting point for a lot of people is Merman's Ethnobotany. It's, a, it's like an encyclopedic book where you can look up a plant and it'll list the Native American uses that the author found that were documented documented generally by white people later interviewing native people whose cultures were food cultures were semi-intact or sometimes more so um uh, and it'll list the plant and a very brief description of the use and if you're diligent you can go back and find the original source the older ones are almost all not copyrighted anymore so they're available online um and you can read what was this like what was actually said about how these plants were used and i i doing that all the time i mean look up uh, but also archaeology. Uh, hmm. So there's a lot of plants that um, were used in eastern North America, but we have no historical written evidence or ethnographic evidence of them being used okay. because the native cultures were displaced um, rapidly before any of that information was recorded and may have been, say, moved to Oklahoma or Iowa or someplace further west from an eastern state where the same vegetation didn't grow. And so that the traditions have been lost. And so uncovering and recreating those things through uh, very sparse historical records or archaeological records is, is really fun. Um, maybe some people would say daunting, but I say fun. And there's, there's also a, a lot of the same plants in Europe as North America. So like currently I'm reading a book that was written by a Swiss author in the 1920s that's not in English, um, but is referencing sources, old sources that he was finding at that time, European sources and compiling them about uh, uh, native North temperate plants around the world. And he's got 740 species, really fascinating stuff. And a lot of plants that are obscure but maybe common and good foods. Um, so, and the beauty of this is like, if you just look in the edible wild plant field guides, there's, there's really just a few things and it's, they mostly focus on what I would call European farmer folk knowledge mm-hmm. that is still alive today. And there's nothing wrong with that knowledge, but it's limited in what it covers. Whereas, you know, my wife and I have been in this like 20 some year project. Well, I started 20 some years ago to like rekindle this tradition of making hickory nut oil, which I can find no evidence of anybody making in North America for about 170 years. Yet it was a major staple food. It was a significant industry. The native people were trading with European settlers for two or 300 years, hickory oil. Um, and the tradition is dead. Wow. Um, 
And this is like something that's sitting right before our eyes. Um, so, uh, and I don't know when's the, you know, right time to get into this, but you had talked about, uh, uh, we were going to speak about, um, is it possible to give back as much as we take? That was, um, that was, and, and the sustainability of foraging. Yeah. Our listeners um, were, pro- were really concerned about their footprint. Like, can they take too much? Can they give back? Like that was a, a huge concern that came up immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so and it should be, and this is so. I guess what I was just saying about this lost knowledge is kind of a, a segue into that topic and that question, which for me is the biggest part of why I'm so deeply fascinated with foraging. I I grew up hungry and eating wild things, but I grew up as a lover of nature. It was my place to get away from my horrible family. Um, you know, like just to get out in the woods and and not come home until dark. Yeah. Um, and then go to bed and, and, you know, and avoid them. That was kind of my process as as a child. And if I was going to be away from my family, I had to have something to eat when I was out in the woods. Um, and, and so, you know, I, the, the idea of this, of nature being destroyed was just like, it just weighed heavily on me as a child. I became a nature conservancy volunteer when I was 14. Um, you know, I became a certified nature conservancy spokesperson when I was 17. I mean, I was volunteering prairie restoration and licking envelopes to send out. And I mean, I was, you know, participating in prairie burns. And I mean, uh, one of my huge interests always was still is, you know, reptile and amphibian conservation and native plant conservation. Um, so this is really important to me. Um, and you know, but what is also uh, important to me is is this bigger picture that for 300,000 years Homo sapiens lived as gatherers and hunters um, without with, with with some notable and important exceptions without destroying nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, um, about 500 years ago we had what the beginning of what we call you know the colonial period and we often don't sit step back and look at where we are in history we're at the close of the colonial period we're, we're and right now like this is in 3000 years that's what they're going to state you know 2000 the year 2000 was roughly the close of the colonial period um and this is a big deal so people from a small part of the world took over all of the rest of the surface of the globe in 300 years wow. um and in that process they used to justify that, you know, morally, uh, a colonial mythology. And there's two really important components of that colonial mythology. And one of them is that humans don't belong in nature. Um, and another one is that nature is worthless. And I, wish, I said there's two, but really there's three, because those two combine into this really important one, which is humans that live in nature are not humans, right? And so... These these are fundamental to the civilized thought process for the entire period of colonialism. Hunter-gatherers are not people. Nature is worthless, and people do not belong in nature. When you put these three things together, you cannot have a sustainable relationship to nature. It is impossible. And so we have been um, we have been destroying cultural knowledge that did not fit in with the, this colonial mythology. So I mentioned hickory oil, right? Yeah. Now, we have a particular hickory in North America, our most common, most widespread, um, you know, bitternut hickory. It is literally, 
like an economically perfect gift to humankind from nature as an oilseed crop, I, I'll go out on a limb and say, not on a limb actually at all, I'm right next to the trunk and I'm holding really tight. This is better than the olive in terms of its economic potential. Um, and it is, if, if the olive were native to North America, today it would be relegated to like a no place, a nothing. It would be yeah. a historical footnote. It would be worthless garbage. That's exactly how we think of our native, unbelievable oil crop, the young bud hickory, right? Yeah. And, and so when I go to farmers and ask about picking their, their hickory nuts to make oil, literally they mean, oh, you mean the trash hickory. I mean, yeah, the trash <laughs> hickory. So that is how we think of this, this gift. Like if we want a sustainable culture, we need this knowledge desperately. We cannot have a sustainable food culture unless we accept that the food that's here is food and it's real and it's worth something so if nature is worthless the only way we can get what we need is to destroy nature and replace it and this idea is deeply embedded even in the conservation and environmental movements yeah. it, it, give an example i i you know had a little bit of a uh a, a disagreement on paper with a person representing a native plant society who rec who said that it's not okay to collect elderberries from the wild, but we can plant elderberry uh, uh, on, on, like, say, on our property, and then we'll provide wildlife habitat and elderberries for ourselves to eat. So what she's saying there implies that nature by itself cannot produce a sustainably harvestable surplus. But nature, when it's recreated by human hands, can do that, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that is, that is like this psychological stumbling point that civilized people have about our relationship to nature that like makes it impossible to have a sustainable relationship. Um, and so uh, for me, the knowledge of these wild plants is it's the first building blocks of a sustainable culture. It is possible to over-harvest things, um, absolutely. Does it happen? Occasionally. Um, I think we hear about it a thousand times disproportionately to how often it actually happens. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of myths about it floating around out there. Um, and and, those, and those, like when we have a deep belief, it finds a way to seep to the surface. So, uh, you know, I don't even like to participate in foraging discussions online because there's so much of this... <laughs> We don't like having <laughs> native plant conversations online either. <laughs> yeah, just ar arguing over, you know, like somebody shows a picture of anything they gather and someone else says, you gathered too much. Mm -hmm. um, and th what happens is when you go out there and you put your hands on the plant and then you take your hands and you bring that plant to your mouth and you eat it, there's something magical that happens. And it, it happens in your brain. And we actually have a word for it. Um, you know, it's called gratitude. Mm -hmm. Every language has a word for gratitude. And gratitude is not something that, like, hippies made up in the 60s. Gratitude mm -hmm. has existed for the, as long as human beings have existed because it's a natural response to, of us to the landscape that supports us. And by eating those wild plants, we, that gratitude grows in our brain and makes us feel deeply connected. And all outdoor activities build that gratitude, but none of them, none of them build it as strongly, as firmly, or as keenly 
as gathering and eating food. None of them. And everybody who forages knows that. And so I don't need to preach to the people that are foragers about conservation. I only need to share the details because I know the desire to, to act right in accordance with the landscape is in them. The desire is there. They care. You cannot forage without caring. Now, there's a few people that are commercial harvesters that really don't care because they're not eating what they're harvesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, people that forage deeply care. And I'm not saying commercial harvesters don't deeply care either because I am part – I am blessed to be part of the living wild rice tradition here in the Midwest. I learned directly from – the unbroken Native American tradition, and I participate in it now. And it is not a. There's no racial boundaries to this tradition. There's lots of Native Americans. There's lots of white people, and there's a number of Asian people that harvest wild rice up here. And the commercial harvesters, I say people like me, I sell some rice every year. There's thousands of us who sell some rice every year. Are we are just as keenly interested in this as every, as the people who are not selling any. Uh, in terms of the conservation, and we are the, we are the ones who have protected the wild rice. In the areas that don't have a living rice tradition, the mm-hmm. rice has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are forces here. There are people who really, really want to get rid of the wild rice, desperately want to get rid of it, and we are the ones who have stopped them. You know, if it, one of the things that we've noticed in this podcast has been such a learning experience for Tom and myself as as we've progressed through this now almost a year now. Our most Three of our most popular episodes, and I'd say Dr. Enrique Sala from National Geographic, mm-hmm. Doug Tallamy, and um, Benjamin Vogt, all kind of echoed a very similar sentiment that most humans feel as though they're the center of the universe <laughs> and and the plants and the wildlife and everything kind of revolve around them where it should be the soil is the universe, plants are the sun – and none of us can survive without them, and you have to change your way of thinking. It's, um, you know, we we talk about things like um, deer numbers being out of whack and eating all the native understory, which are affecting everything else. We're we we can do that as well because our numbers are out of whack, <laughs> and and we can overharvest. And and even last episode, Doctor Emil Devito was talking about the the town of Caviar in Delaware who shipped all their their sturgeon eggs out for caviar and then thought god had forsaken them because there was no more sturgeon in the ocean so it's you you know it's it's you have to change your way of thinking um that we are part of nature you have to get that connectivity back otherwise it it, the whole system's out of whack so i completely completely relate to what you're saying um and i completely appreciate the passion in which you're saying it. yeah and you know uh, and certainly um there's too many people for everybody to go gather unlimited everything, anything, anytime they want. But there is also, there's not too many people for us to, for everybody to gather a substantial portion of their food. And that may sound crazy, but if it does, that means you haven't thought about it very much because right now we get our food from the land and there is actually, um, a huge portion of the biomass, um, is not planted intended still Mm -hmm. um it's you know roughly 18 percent of the world's uh land surface is cultivated um and that's uh uh 
even within that system, there's a lot of not intentionally grown food. So some people will say, well, you could, should only gather invasive plants, or you should only gather the non-natives or the weedy plants. Um, and I would say you should gather the things that you can gather sustainably. And mm. then there's people who see foraging as only a negative, like you only take. And that's part of our mythology of, of the stupid savage that, that the colonialists made up, right? So they, they refused to see what was happening. So you saw native people in the Pacific Northwest with these camas meadows where they, would, they were gathering this, beautiful, this wild camas from these beautiful meadows of camas. Well, these were giant permaculture camas meadows that yeah. were intensively mm. and carefully managed that the Europeans called wilderness. Um, you know, so Native people have been operating with a different mindset for a long time. How long? Uh, you know, there's, ar there's a few archaeologists arguing that in South Africa, uh, the area around uh, the Clasis River mouth has been managed for fire-dependent root vegetables for 100,000 years. Wow. Um, wow. There's a cave near the Clasis River mouth that was inhabited for about 90,000 years consecutively. I, that's sustainability there. People yeah. lived in this cave for 90,000 years. A good-sized village, maybe, I don't know, 800 to 1,000 people in one place for 90,000 years. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so this has always been part of the human birthright. We are not simple um, takers from nature. We are manipulators of nature. And we, we don't have the option of not manipulating nature. That's, that's not in our behavioral repertoire, and it's not, an, it's not a, a, an economic option anyways. So the question isn't will we manipulate nature, it is how will we manipulate nature. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, for example, in my region, we should have big areas that are hickory nut and sugar maple with an understory of ramps and may apples and nettles managed that way because we eat those things yeah um and that would be a lot better than corn and soybeans yeah and and you so, have to you know and even i don't know if it is for you in in the midwest for us hickory really only produces like a decent crop every other year of seed like mm -hmm. it, it doesn't consistently produce like a good mast every year so it's like that's even something well, to consider when you're when you're doing that yeah certainly i mean nut crops are inherently variable um they so so the casual observer of nut crops, they see the surplus over what wildlife eat, not the actual crop. Mm -hmm. um, so the actual crop isn't nearly as variable as we imagine it is, but what because what we generally see is is uh, you know the leftover after rodents have eaten their fill, maybe zero 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 and then a lot and then zero a lot and then zero zero a lot. Whereas the actual crop is 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 what we're seeing is like the peaks of the yeah. wave, it sometimes rising over that rodent, you know, consumption mm -hmm. level. Um, so uh, as, as soon as uh, nuts are managed a little bit differently, like given appropriate spacing, uh, then all of a sudden the crop appears to stabilize a lot more. Um, so this is what we see in pecan orchards. A lot of people don't know that the, the, a very large portion of the world pecan supply until recently, the majority was actually wild pecans, hmm. not Oh, not planted pecans, um, and you see the same thing when you're you know, when the, when they're managed that way. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the benefit of woody crops is that they're perennial, mm -hmm. you know. But the negative side of that is that they generally have built-in crop fluctuation as as part mm -hmm. of their of their uh, reproduction strategy. Um, but you know, 
the idea that we sh- uh, should only take advantage of 20% or so of the food plants in the world, it just objectively doesn't seem like it can make sense. Like, you could say we had a whole continent of North America, and our food, our food, uh, what we eat on this continent today is maybe less than 1% food native to this mm-hmm. continent. Like, what is mathematically or logically, what is the chances that the foods that worked best on this continent just happen to come from China and uh, the Mediterranean region. There's a really, really low chance of that. No, it's it's funny you mentioned historical perception too because I I immediately thought when you said savages, you know, our founding fathers referred to the Native Americans as savages in the Declaration of Independence, (laughs) but yet they – the Native Americans equally found it absurd like the Europeans were coming over. They urinate in the stream and then go downstream and drink, drink out yeah. of the same stream. It's just – it's funny the perception of what is right, you know, and it just seems like it was being done right here for so long until European intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I'm not I'm, I'm not saying Native people were perfect or anything yeah. either. Oh, yeah. And I am what – I, what, I, what I want to be clear about though is, is I'm – I'm using the word savage in the sense, um, not in its modern sense, where it's basically like a naughty word, yeah. right? Savage meant hunter-gatherer in, in 1700. <laughs> there wasn't any ambiguity about what it meant. Um, and it also meant not human. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and if you look at old uh, um, anthropological literature, it's very clear that that's what the word meant. It, it meant hunter-gatherer and not human. Wow. Um, and the arguments being put forth, so they weren't saying they weren't doing things right. Uh, they were saying they were not human beings, and therefore they were wild animals and could be eradicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was that w- that was the precise reason reason for that logic. And uh, you know, so um, we've lost touch with what that word meant and what its function was because it was such a dark and ugly part of our history. But I mean, there's anthropological articles from the 1850s literally calling for the utter extermination of every single non-white race from the face of the earth wow wow That's... um as the, using the excuse that they're savage yeah which means they're not human which which means they can be it makes it okay and, yeah. and the term aboriginal also has that origin so so aboriginal means from a different origin and what was being implied was that the biblical creation did not pertain to the people of australia Therefore, they did not have any rights that might be set forth in the Bible. Therefore, we could eradicate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so this is really deep in the Western psyche, and it ha- we, we haven't dug it out. We haven't pulled the skeleton out and dusted it off and, and, and really dealt with it. Um, no, but, and I, uh, think, I think some people don't want to deal with it, but I'm glad we're discussing yeah, it too, oh yeah. because it's a no. So, some such a some part people don't, and, and it's okay with me. I'll, I'll bring up I'll bring up the ugly stuff, and I'll take the heat for it if I have to. <laughs> yeah. But it's so, become such a part of our our daily life, just from our food culture. That, like you mentioned in the very beginning, we kind of washed away some of the the history of all these native foods that we have a lot of times right in our backyards or things that we cut down to build our, our housing development that we live in, that was all food. And I love the example you use of of um, the hickory nut canopy with the mayapple yeah. and the and the ramps and all that because you think of a cornfield or you think of a soybean field, it's one crop that's harvested at one time and where, in your example, well, you have three or four different food sources there 
that are harvested all in different seasons and for the most part are all perennial crops. You're, you can, you're planting it once and you're going back year after year after year to just collect that harvest at those certain times. And they're replenishing the soil, yeah. whereas agricultural mm. crops are taking from the soil and mm-hmm. depleting the soil, where these native uh, cultures or, yeah. or, or groupings completely take care of themselves. They, yeah, and they, they all feed off each other and help yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we haven't even explored these. I mean, J. Russell Smith came out with a tree crops book in 1929, and we haven't even explored what he suggested then, you know, but a a silvopasture system with <clears throat> oil nut hickories spaced at 50% canopy. The production of beef, according to the University of Missouri, uh, is, is with 50% hickory canopy versus no hickory canopy on permanent hill pasture land. The production of beef, 108% of the production without the trees. The production of grass, 95%. Okay, so the actually increased production of beef, but almost the same production of grass, um, and 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 th- then there's the hickory crop, and mm-hmm. then there's the soil stabilization, and there is the calcium pump of having the hickory's deep roots. Yeah. You know, it's just like it's a no-brainer to try our native crops uh, in in intensive uh, and extensive, you know, applications. I just feel like we can we can we can do so much better. Um, in every environmental metric, um, you know, by, by using some of these native foods. Yeah. yeah. And you're, I guess it kind of even ties into that concept of regenerative agriculture where uh, – and that was something Dr. Enrique Sala brought up as yeah. well. And, uh, and we've talked about having another podcast episode kind of delving into that even though it's less about native plants. But in your concept, it does involve a lot of native plants and – Everything kind of feeds off each other, helps each other, is symbiotic, and um, and with the the cattle aspect, I'd assume you're getting a a much higher quality meat as well as getting that that production out of it because they're eating a better food than um, than corn and soy yeah. and whatever else we're we're pumping into them in feedlots. So no, that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, and you know, um, when we talk about foraging, most of the information we have about foraging and most of the plants covered in our foraging field guides are, you know, what I say, as I said before, farmer folk knowledge. These are plants gathered that grow inadvertently or spontaneously on the farm, right? So these are, uh, most of our knowledge or much of it refers to plants that aren't even growing in natural plant communities, Mm -hmm. but inadvertently on farming land. And when you say, you know, regenerative agriculture, I would say um, that encapsulates like what I'm doing on my property, I would say is regenerative agriculture with mostly native plants. Mm -hmm. So my property, uh, I have uh, uh, about 12 acres of abandoned cropland and then uh, another 12 or so acres of uh, pasture land that had scattered trees growing up in the woods and another you know, another section of actual, you know, woods that was, it was wooded pasture though. So I'm restoring the native edible and non-edible things in my wooded area. And I'm, I'm, I'm planting, I have some apple trees in five acres, which was crop field when I bought it. And then there's crop field that was abandoned in the early 1980s. It grew grew up with a pure stand of alder, which is native, but I'm using that as like a nurse tree to cover a a diverse, uh, you know, native herbaceous understory 
uh, ramps, pokeweed, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and then uh, also planting, you know, food-producing shrubs that are native and pr- provide wildlife habitat, you know, wild plums, highbush cranberry, nannyberry, um, stuff, wild grape, elderberry, stuff like that. So, um, the, I mean, they, they can go they can go hand in hand. And this is something that I'm not doing this to not be commercially viable. Like yeah. I'm selling food that I'm producing this way and, and, and making a, a portion of my living at it. And it's something that I'm hoping, you know, other people can emulate. Um, and- the alders are a great and, choice too, just because they're nitrogen fixing. They're giving back in the same way a, a legume would would to the to the yeah, soil. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and the alders are just what took over here. Um, and I'm just uh, um, I found out that they're actually a great nurse crop for uh, the same understory vegetation that would grow in a mature like old growth hardwood forest. Like ramps mm-hmm. grow great under alders, for example. Okay. Um, I was surprised to learn. Um, and so I'm leaving them under the alders until they're well established, and then I'm, and then I'm putting you know hickories, over the alders, mm-hmm. um, and you know other larger trees. You, we we keep talking about native plants because that's what we do and and that's what we promote. But exotic and invasives are as much a part of all, our culture today as almost as native plants. Some people I think can recognize more exotic plants than they can uh, native plants. So, do you? Do you actively forage from invasives or exotic plants as well as as you're doing this? Like we obviously we like to promote native plants, and that's something that that we can connect with because uh, it's part of our heritage. But does this kind of seep in also? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I gather <clears throat> I gather quite a few um, <clears throat> non-native plants. Okay. Um, you know, if I'm in an area that's got autumn olives, I'm going to pick them because they're great food. Okay. Um, however, you know. Really, the bulk of my relationship to the invasive plants is eradicating them, yeah. not because they're bad, but because th- I have native plants that I want to, to be living here. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I have a place that I gather uh, spring vegetables, and it's been recently invaded by garlic mustard, and I don't let garlic mustard grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is actually another reason we desperately need foragers on the landscape, because these non-native plants are here to stay. Yeah. We have already culturally made the decision that we are not going to do anything about it. We could have, but we decided we weren't going to. Um, so we might keep them out of a few parks, but in general, we're going to let them run free and, and take over the landscape. We, you know, and, and, so, uh, and that's already happened to the extent that it's the cat's out of the bag now. Yeah. Um, and so if we are going to have any place with a native, what we would today consider a native plant community in 500 years, it will only be through the diligent and continuously applied effort of human hands. And I cannot envision any way that that will ever happen on a large scale other than people having an economic relationship with food. It's deep. Um, you know, uh, this, this growing on that landscape. Deep. So, uh, you know, it, it's disheartening to hear this, but like, yeah. You know, Amur honeysuckle and Japanese honeysuckle, they're here. And, and, and we, they are now part of the plant community of this continent. And so, you know, my property, I don't have buckthorn here. I don't have Tartarian honeysuckle. I don't have common or glossy buckthorn. Not because they weren't here, but because I don't let them grow here because I treasure what is here. Mm-hmm. I have neighbors that are overrun with those plants. And Honestly, other than if we want anything more than a few nature preserves to have native plant communities, it will be through foraging, and I cannot envision any other way it's going to happen. 
Do do you feel that there's countries that are more progressive than we are? Like I just learned today from Tom's brother that when he was in Switzerland, they actually had mushroom check-in points where they they would go through what you're forged and help you identify what you had and and things like that, which to me is is way more progressive um, than what we have here. Do you know of countries that are way ahead of the curve in what they're doing with this this process? I think that the United States, as far as developed countries is probably the least culturally hospitable to foraging. Wow. Um, it's way more socially acceptable in Europe in general, uh, in Japan. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of uh, poorer countries in the world, it's, uh, it's an economic necessity and there's no question of authorities interfering with foraging, but we're a very anti-foraging uh, country. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the Upper Mississippi National Wildlife Refuge allows, you know, all sorts of hunting and trapping and fishing. Um, they don't allow us to harvest most of the unbelievable diversity of massive quantities of plants that grow there extremely vigorously. So I can legally, I can pull out uh, a lotus or, you know, different plants to make uh, a duck blind, but I can't legally eat those plants. Hmm. Um, wow. So, so, so our, our, our entire concept of the relationship of humans to nature disfavors foraging in this country and I, and I and I'm hoping that we can see that change maybe in a, in a, within a generation and we need a, we need a lot of I think foraging voices that also embrace conservation and just rationality mm-hmm. um, to, to, to change to change that because I think you're very right Europe I think is much more tolerant and and uh, you know and it varies by state in this country too some you know- states are, are uh, you know, I would say there's like, there's like two or three big centers of anti-foraging feelings in this country. It's okay. New York City, it's Chicago, and it's L.A. Um, the, the anti-foraging ethic yeah. in those large urban areas is, is quite powerful. Wow. Wow. That's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because one of our listeners mentioned to us that in some states, a fishing license is required just to harvest seaweed. And that posed like a whole nother line of questioning for us here before we even had this conversation with you like someone someone was asking us if you were to collect oysters technically is that no longer foraging is that hunting at that point uh and some of these more saline or i mean uh saltwater or brackish mm-hmm. communities well most people consider hunting and fishing as part of foraging okay mm-hmm. um and uh you know, the, the term kind of was popularized first by anthropologists who certainly, you know, use foraging as a term for hunting and gathering together, okay. use it as a kind of a replacement single word term to replace hunting and gathering. And then it kind of leaked from there into the general public in the, in the late 90s. Um, and so uh, and most people that consider themselves foragers uh, that hunt include hunting in their, quote, foraging, hunting and fishing. Okay. And I'm, I'm certainly one of them. So. You know, what we see with hunting regulations and fishing regulations is when the supply, when the demand exceeds the supply, then you're required to get a license or there's like mm. bag limit. Okay. So we may have like in northern Wisconsin, snowshoe hares, nobody wants to hunt them. There's no limit. Year round, as many as you want to shoot. Something like rough grouse that people really like to hunt, then there's a limit, five birds a day. <laughs> All right. Um, and so with foraging uh, in Wisconsin, I'll just say, for example, there's two things you need a license to harvest. Ginseng, which is not for consumption generally, it's for sale, and then wild rice, because there's a lot of harvest pressure on the wild rice. Um, you know, hickory nuts, that's something, 
it would be almost unthinkable to need a license yeah. to pick black walnuts yeah. or hickory nuts because there's so many. There's no need to regulate it. Um, I'm I'm okay with the regulation of and the licensing requirements for things that are under a lot of pressure. Now, seashore foraging in some parts of the country is pretty intense and is regulated. I know in Oregon, you know, there's pretty detailed regulations for what and when you can harvest as far as, as um, you know, shellfish. Um, I don't know about seaweed regulations. Um, I haven't harvested much seaweed in my life. Mm-hmm. But um, I get seaweed as gifts. You know? <laughs> People who live on the coast are like, hey, Sam can't get seaweed. So let's send him seaweed. So I have like tons of it that's we'll been sent to me as gifts, we'll which have is to collect, really flattering. We'll have to collect oh, some salicornia but I have for very you. Little. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll collect some salicornia for you when we we go out and harvest uh, smooth cordgrass seed. I know that grows along in mm-hmm. with it. So yeah. um, I love salicornia. Every time I come to the, the coast, I'll, I'll eat some salicornia. Yeah. Oh, awesome. and that was I'm, we kind of mentioned. My brother is um, been my gateway into foraging, and he's been my kind of my guide and. Sometimes I question, like, do you really know what that is? <laughs> Not, but he's been right uh, 100% so far. Of the time he's one hundred percent right yeah. so far. <laughs> but um, but that was he was texting, or I said, hey, what questions do you have to him yesterday? And he sent me some stuff this morning, and that was eventually he just sent me a picture of salicornia, and. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know if Sam's the right guy because he lives in Wisconsin. I'm not sure how familiar he is with the coast, but that was one of the things. But, I don't know if my brother's even collected it yet, but now he's but now he's interested. On if he yeah. wants to get it. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I, I, I'm glad you touched on, Sam, because we, we've had Ducks Unlimited on, and we've learned that when you buy your duck stamp, a lot of that goes into preservation. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of this, you know, it's kind of hard when you think of regulations, but a lot of it is to protect it and to also – help bolster it bolster it so you know and i i I completely agree and it's interesting that you also mentioned that there's plenty of black walnuts and we've lost it here in the northeast when you think of how much of our forests were chestnuts and the chestnut mass that that wildlife depended on you know we've Mm -hmm. managed there's still no shortage of these other (laughs) other nuts even without chestnuts yeah i mean um the landscape really produces a lot, a lot of food. And, um, you know, despite the idea that nature is really, really fragile, it's incredibly resilient. Um, and we, you know, so we have this idea of impact. Anything that a human does on the landscape is bad. But you could apply the same thing to a deer or a cottontail rabbit. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they, oh, every, every time they go out there, they eat something, that thing is dead. You know, yeah. but nature will fill that gap. So as long as people are paying attention um, and and not being wanton, um, you can harvest from nature and still have nature. And that and that's why I really profound. Um, but yeah, the nuts. Um, I I would love to be able to collect wild chestnuts, anything more than a few at a time. Yeah. Um, uh, the way we collect hickory nuts and acorns and walnuts now, um, and you know. My grandchildren will probably be able to do that somewhere. I mm-hmm. I hope so. They're they're doing a lot of strides in in hybridizing the American chestnut yeah. to get it back. So one of the, th- the- yeah, you know I'm I'm not generally a proponent of 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 GMO plants, but you know the the State University of New York at Syracuse, their forestry school, has uh, has a GMO chestnut that has one gene from wheat to mm-hmm. make it a hundred percent resistant to chestnut blight. And if you ask the chestnut, do you want this gene? 
or your species goes extinct. I think the chestnut says, "Give me that gene." Yeah. Um, we, and I was totally a skeptic. I went, I went on a tour of the facility, um, and uh, I was completely converted. I thought this is absolutely, this is absolutely incredible. Like this tree is now, I mean, it's not a hybrid. It's got one little tiny gene from wheat in there. We, we um, we've had the and, same conversation about American elm with the, with Princeton mm-hmm, elm. Yeah. You know, I'd rather see that than no elm at all. Right, and at least with American elm, at least you know they can survive to maturity and, and 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 produce seed. So we know that if we have disturbance on the landscape, that the elms will fill those disturbances and eventually breed themselves naturally into resistance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But whereas the chestnut, um, this is not happening. No. Um, and and uh, so I was just. I was floored, you know, uh, at how I had never heard. I mean, you know, they told us about the wonders of genetic engineering back in the 80s, what it was going to do. And what did it do? It gave us Roundup Ready crops that <laughs> allowed us to spray just loads and loads of herbicide and poison everything. Like, nothing good came out of it. This is the first good thing I've actually heard that's actually come out of, you know, GMO. And it was done so, it was done really carefully and thoughtfully with, with that in mind. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I. <laughs> And that's something that we've lost that we no longer think about that is coming back. It, it's funny when I think of foraging and food. I don't always think of, you know, I, re- I initially said I think of fruit or like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just experienced for the first time this year in my wood pile amber jelly roll, and it never experienced. It. And I was like, oh, what's this? I got it all over myself, and I'm wiping it off. And then I, I was curious about it and research and found it. I'm like, oh, this is. This is edible. I had I had no idea, you know, just the the amount of things that are edible and known that I had no idea of. Mm-hmm. That if you just look a little deeper, look a little further. Um, are there other things like that 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 maybe we're not aware of? That you know, something like that amber jelly roll. That's like, hey, there's there's things that if you just think about or look a little deeper, that you'd be surprised. There is so many that you would be surprised. Okay. I mean, and, and I'm, I've been doing this for a long time, and a lot of people tell me, you know, say that I am an expert on edible wild plants, but every year I discover one in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just astounding to me. Um, like, some of these traditions, I, I'm, I'm convinced, I'm certain of the fact that there are some great foods in eastern North America, native here, for which the knowledge is completely dead. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. knows its food. Nobody knows how it, how it was used. It's gone. Um, because so many of them that we uncover are just hanging by this tiny little thread. Um, you know, and so everybody's got something in their yard that's a, a well-known edible or, or 30 things in their yard mm-hmm. that are well-known edibles. Um, but just a couple examples. You know, so we have this in, invasive um, <clears throat> uh, plant from from Asia, uh, Scorzonera liciniata, and, uh, you know, Scorzonera is a genus, uh, you know, related to dandelions and salsify um, that uh, has edible roots, edible greens. You can buy them in some seed catalogs, um, and yet it is a really, really common, it's a really common weed on the high plains, you know, okay. from, from, from Montana all the way down to Texas. <clears throat> And, like, nobody in the foraging community, like, knew that. Even, like, the people that were, like, they're like, teaching foraging for a living didn't know this plant existed. I just happened to see it in my Great Plains flora, and it said, common weed around 
uh, you know, Boulder, Colorado. And I was like, what? So I called a friend that lived there that <laughs> teaches about foraging, and she's like, I never heard of that. I'm like, I described it. Said, said, go find it along this roadside. She went there. 50 years later after it was written, she says to me, I found it. It's really good. You know, and, and so, like, there is just this thing known as a food in Asia where it came from, totally unknown here. Wow. Um, a, another example is, so, so there's this plant that looks quite a bit like water hemlock, you know, which is the deadliest plant in North America. Yeah. That's not something to screw around with, right? But um, uh, Oxypolis rigidi, or um, sometimes called stiff cowbane. Cowbane is another name for water hemlock, you know. All of our literature says it's deadly poisonous. Deadly poisons. Well, some years ago, I encountered an old uh, Cherokee ethnography where one or two old women said, we eat that. Um, this was in the 50s. You know, women, women that were old in the 1950s, remember it as a child. Oh, we eat that. We call that swamp potato. Uh, you know, we eat the tubers of it. And I thought, oh, wow. Well, I already knew this plant. And yeah. I, I, I was telling people it's deadly. I told myself it was deadly. But I was suspicious that it wasn't so i found one other source to corroborate that extremely ob obscure and i went and i tried that it's probably my favorite root vegetable probably wow. the best yeah. root vegetable i've ever eaten right and this is literally like if any traditional knowledge is hanging by a thread this is it i mean these were the people who refused to go on the trail of tears hid in the mount in the southern appalachians for a generation before they were, you know, or, or more until they were allowed to, like, stay there. Those few people preserved that bit of knowledge. Otherwise, this, this plant culturally would be unknown. I would presume it was eaten over a very large area of its range in, in eastern North America, but there's no ethnography written for any tribe within the primary range of that plant, and except for the Cherokee. And so that knowledge is just just about dead. Now it's something I've eaten intermittently for several years, and I think it's fabulous. It's, it's not deadly. I'm telling you, it's not. It's not. Mm -hmm. it, it, it has no. It has no uh, textural or scent or or other similarities to water hemlock. It's just that people are like, oh, well, we're scared of it because it's in the carrot family, so we'll just call it deadly. And then this is what the, the cultural or is what the colonial subjugation of knowledge looks like, right? Yeah. So there is. Big things, little things, obscure things, and not so obscure things. There is mysteries waiting to be solved all around us, and there's things that aren't mysteries that we just need to open our eyes to in everybody's yard. Everyone. I mean, I had a guy that was a uh, a police officer came to a workshop of mine. He lived in Chicago, and I showed him wild parsnip, and he said, "Wow, that's that plant. It's amazing. I never seen it before, and it's the same parsnip as the grocery store." I mean, and we cooked some up. He said, those are wonderful. He said, I wish we had these grown in the Chicago area. And I said, oh, you definitely do. He said, oh, this is so distinct. It's so big. I've never seen this before. I said, you will see it now. He called me uh, the next day and said, when I got home, the fence in my backyard lined with parsnips. Wow. Wild parsnips, right? So so, so these mysteries are just they're all around us. Just, you know, and, uh, and I'm glad you're – never ceases to amaze me. I'm glad you're keeping some of these alive. Like if you think just throughout time, like information does get lost. No one really knows how the pyramids were built. That information just over time just gets gets lost. Mm -hmm. And you think of how many people had to – when it comes to food and deadly food, how many people had to die to figure out what you can eat, <laughs> right? Like blowfish, that like you have to cook it a certain way before – you know, mm -hmm. so that it's not deadly. 
And it's the same way with this and the fact that's, that it's being kept alive, that yeah. this knowledge you know, that's barely hanging on is still out there and being shared is huge. It's, mm-hmm. it's huge. Yeah, and not not only that, but we have so much food just right, like you said, in our backyards that we're really almost letting go to waste. It's um, it's a way to save a little money and enjoy something different that's just as nutritious or probably even more nutritious than what you would be getting at the grocery store anyway. And you think about how much food gets wasted a year. Yeah. Anyway, yep. you know, when you can just take what you need, harvest what you need mm-hmm. is is phenomenal. Yep. Um, one, one, I'm sorry, go ahead. I could hear you were starting to say well, something. I was going to say, it's, uh, it's definitely more nutritious than yeah. what you can get. And that's the thing is we are now suffering from what they call the diseases of civilization. You know, we're overfed and undernourished. Our food has about 40% the nutritional density that we're adapted for. And we are all constantly suffering from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and foraging is an answer to that. I mean, a way of putting nutritionally dense foods back into our diets. Um, and it's it's the most practical, most economical way to do that. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's not only an, uh, something fun and it's really fun, but it's also something really practical and really like incredible medical benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I have two other questions that are yeah. just kind of in a, a different tangent. One is: Are there any places you? you advise people to avoid foraging because it might be close to farm fields or it's in a park where they, you know, they spray certain stuff. Are there any places like that that you, you try and tell people, Hey, don't look over there. Look, look someplace else. That's a great question. I'm super glad that you brought that up. Um, so, uh, you know, back in the seventies, they would have said that the biggest thing that foragers should worry about is, you know, lead from car exhaust today. It's herbicide. Um, most people don't realize how much herbicide is sprayed or how much is being used. Um, I've been actually documenting it all over the country. I mean, we are seeing the, this utter destruction of native plant communities with aerial herbicide on a scale that's unimaginable to most people. Um, and this, this is all over the place. It's not just in, like, golf courses and lawns anymore. I mean, there's aerial spraying of millions of acres a year in Texas to kill mesquite, for example. Um, and so you've got to try to figure out where stuff is and isn't being sprayed with herbicide. That's, that's, that's the big thing that I worry about. Um, you know, I was gathering cow parsnip on some public land in Pennsylvania with a group of people. And some uh, Pennsylvania uh, DNR employees came by, and they weren't sure the difference between cow parsnip, the native, and hogweed, the invasive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they um, they told us that we just sprayed all, all that yesterday. Oh. And it hadn't showed up. You know, it hadn't become physically evident in the spring. And luckily, we hadn't eaten any yet. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect it at all because it was an area with no hogweed. It was a native plant, was, you know. Um, <sighs> Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Really scary. And I forget what they sprayed, but it wasn't Roundup. It was something way worse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so that's the thing to watch for. I mean, uh, that's really what foragers need to worry about. Okay. Did you have another And then one? I guess um, you, we addressed this a little bit earlier, but if someone is living in a development and they have, like, their little postage stamp, what are some things that you'd recommend them planting just in the yard so they have something they can go outside and, and collect yeah, we if had, they can't make it out to a wild place to we, go get we, stuff. We have a lot of listeners that 
that were very interested in permaculture. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, if there's a mushroom or, or, or a plant or something that yeah. you really recommend, that was, that was a huge question that we got. Gosh, I mean, all depends on the soil and the size of your postage stamp and, and, and where you are. Um, but, I mean, one perennial plant, you know, that's kind of a permanent perennial uh, that's attractive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something out here that maybe people are thinking is crazy, but one of the most beautiful plants is pokeweed. Mm-hmm. And I, I know houses that have a pokeweed plant that they tend like an apple tree in the yard. Mm-hmm. People that actually eat, eat poke greens okay. every spring mm-hmm. and pokeweed has to be boiled and drained to be eaten mm-hmm. but you know and, and and maybe someone doesn't want that but people come to my orchard and they see my pokeweed and they say can i get one of those plants those are beautiful <laughs> now that's um, because we don't have pokeweed in the wild yeah. around here that's one um, that, but that, that has to be like there's you were so many options yeah that that has that could be poisonous if it's not prepared correct is it am i right on that one yes okay yes. if you eat pokeweed raw it's going to make you very ill okay mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I All feel right. bad. I have a giant one that's in my backyard that I've been cutting down every year. <laughs> now, now if I only knew. I had to look it up, but didn't I be- even think about it. I believe the Indians used yeah. the, the berries for ink mm-hmm. also, if I remember correctly. Not- yeah, in fact, my, my daughter writes letters in pokeweed ink. Wow. Really? Now. She's, yeah, she, uh, she started doing that last summer. Uh, somebody told her about it, and uh, so... She uh she spilled it all over her bed a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's a great plant. I yeah. I just read an article recently about the history of eating pokeweed. Hmm. Like in, wow. in I can't remember who wrote it or it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. That's a great one because for us in the Northeast, that's something we see fairly often. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, there's one factory that cans pokeweed commercially. There used to be a, another one in Arkansas. Um, there's a the city in Tennessee that still has a pokeweed festival, um, but you you know better make sure you cook it appropriately. Mm-hmm. You know you should right. boil it for ten or twelve minutes and drain the water, um, or it's and, and collect the greens only when they're young. Okay. Um, so it's actually um, one of the best known wild leafy greens, but mm-hmm. also one of the ones one of the few that there's like a, a worry if you were to screw up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And you were you sorry I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were gonna yeah I apologize say a couple other plants before we uh we got in your way oh i mean i mean you know there's just so many it's hard it's hard to 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 say i mean uh if you know but a lot of uh, the beauty of a native uh, i'm mean, sorry a perennial plant is, is that you you put one in and you have it for a very long time but you also if you want like weedy plants that are gonna um like weedy native plants that are reseed themselves i like american bellflower it's gorgeous you know or a campanulastrum americanum uh, and the shoots are delicious, um, and you know you, one plant will produce thousands and thousands of seeds. So if you've got a little patch and you've got thirty plants, you know you just let one or two go to seed. Um, we have a bunch of you know we do that with black nightshade in our garden too, which the ripe berries are excellent. We always throw the seed the uh, seeds around the garden so that if they come up where we don't need to get rid of them, we'll let them go. So later in the season we get all the berries every you know september and october so i mean there's a, you can incorporate the wild annuals and perennials into the landscaping so easy there's just so many of them how how many the the plants that you forage is that a common practice where you'll keep the seeds and reestablish them um yeah i mean like for example let's say like ramps um you know i i've got a lot on my property but i i bet you uh, 
you know, I've, I've tripled the amount of ramps on my properties since I've, you know, been here just by planting. Um, and, uh, you know, if it, if I can, and it's not inconvenient, I will. But the other half of tending is not just planting, but is removing competition, right? So yeah. I may see a bush that I really like, even something I don't eat, you know, like a, a alternate leaf dogwood. And I think, you know what, there's a couple white ash saplings around this alternate leaf dogwood. And I'm going to cut them out when I, next time I'm doing firewood, cause I have 20,000 white ash saplings yeah. and I have one pagoda dogwood. Um, you know, and so that's the other way that somebody can, can regulate the plant community on their landscape uh, to increase diversity. Awesome. Awesome. I, I do both. All right. Very cool. I, I think we're, we're down. We, 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 taken so much of your time and i think we're down to our final question which we did discuss before we went on the air and, and we had to make like, some concessions that's, again <laughs> and that's that's okay but you and we thought we'd make it two part and i'm sure both are equally just as hard if we always ask what is your favorite native plant and we were curious if you had a favorite food to forage and i know it's it's difficult to pick just one it's like picking a favorite child which is impossible uh, but you know, if, even if you could just give a couple, like what, if you have a couple favorite native plants, if you want to do different categories or favorite fruits to forage, if, if you have any that come to mind. Well, I mean, you know, one that comes to mind is that bitter nut or yellow bud hickory, because okay. the idea that I've got in my pantry right now, five gallons of the best cooking oil that I have ever tasted. And it came from this tree that grows all over my property that people think is worthless and i can gather up 15 gallons of those nuts in an hour when i get a good crop i mean to me that's just that's just awesome i mean it's just incredible um you know so you know i don't like to pick favorites and in two years somebody else will say a different tree is my favorite (laughs) oh but uh, i've been talking about that one a lot for the last few years I'm, i'm curious to see how many of our listeners seek that out after this episode or or look into mm-hmm. that i'd i'd be curious oh i'm i'm on his Are website you? right now <laughs> get some <laughs> that's awesome well, r- right now we're the only people commercially making the oil the only people mm-hmm. that i know of making the oil in the united states but i've been trying for 15 years to get other people to do it and i got a i got a person in maryland who has an oil press and they made they made some this year for themselves and I got a, a guy in Vermont interested who is going to be doing it soon, uh, and someone in North Carolina. So it's I, I think awesome. in a decade you're going to be able to buy hickory oil mm-hmm. from a lot of places, or better yet, like local co-ops. Right? I got people who bring me nuts, and I press the oil for them, and I keep mm-hmm. one third, and I give them two thirds. Awesome. And and you know, so that's great. There's no investment. The forager just they gather up something, and they get to get awesome cooking oil. Um, that's wonderful. So I think you can see it grow. I love that. I love that. All right. So we always end the show with a final thought, and we each uh, get a turn. And what we kind of do is we, we, we give you the floor. You get to – if if you want to – you can use it however you want. If you want to summarize or, or promote something or just leave uh, – you know, follow up on something or mention something we didn't cover, you can, you can use the time however you want. But the floor is yours. It's the best food in the world. Why not eat it? <laughs> very, yeah. very, very true. Yeah, very that's, true. And for me, that's basically what I was going to say: is it's something that is accessible to almost everyone. 
um, if you've been thinking about it, or even if you haven't been thinking about it, now's the time to go out and, and do this. And uh, and there's a great resource. There's more than a, just one great resource out there, but one of them is Sam's book, uh, uh, The Forger's Harvest. And um, that's a great place to start with identifying and just knowing, giving you that, that first step. Um, go look in your backyard, try and figure out what stuff is, and... and get his book so that he can try and figure out what it is and and take that step and eat it well i you know i think for my final thought i'm interested you know for for someone that chose native plants as a living i'm constantly reminded how much i don't know Mm -hmm. and this is just another aspect of it now i'm very competitive and now i need to know (laughs) so (laughs) so i'm looking forward to learning more and sharing with everyone as i'm learning as well so that's that's part of the process are there I, and I, I just thought of this. Are, are there like foraging groups that are good or, or a good resource where people get together and share this information? You know, I know of one kind of small, low-key foraging club uh, in the United States. Wow. Um, wow. And um, they're looking to – people are looking to expand that. They have like – there's like a fledgling club. Uh, that was That's in Wisconsin. There's one in Indiana that's kind of forming now. And, and they're talking about maybe making a network of these groups. Um, there's more than 100 mushroom clubs mm-hmm. in the United States. Wow. Um, so if you to learn the mushrooms, you, you do have a great resource of, of people getting together, getting together yeah. for that purpose. But for plants, I'm hoping that it forms. Um, and uh, there, there's, you know, there's a number of online groups, and I don't know much about them because I honestly don't participate. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, I honestly, other than our Facebook group for this podcast, which I love the group of people that we have and they're kind and polite and, and very helpful. And listen, I don't really participate in any other mm-hmm. native plant groups. I've, I've been every oh, time for, I, I yeah, for peek my, <laughs> my every time I peek my nose in, I'm like, no, nah, I'm not interested. <laughs> so there's a few yearly events focused on foraging uh, that are great. There's one called the North Carolina Wild Food Weekend. OK. And that's held usually in late April, It'd be about 100, 120 people or something like that at that event. Um, great event, great people, way to learn, way to, way to feel like you're not abnormal because there's 100 people around you that are into the same thing. Um, and then um, my wife organizes one in southwestern Wisconsin, kind of in the Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa corner there All right. All right. Um, called the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival. Um, and she brings in instructors from all over the Midwest and a couple from further. Even me, she lets me come and teach. Oh, there. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and and so there, so so that's like a one weekend a year thing, but it is a blast, and it's a it's a great way to to learn. Last year's was canceled. I'm not even sure how, what you know how this year's is gonna go, but I I think it'll happen. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping. Well, I. I I think hands down I learned more oh, yeah. this episode yeah. than I have any of the previous I'm episodes. I'm excited for spring to kind of roll around so I can get out and start trying some of this stuff and it, it, me also really get rolling on it. Me also. So, so with that, we thank you guys for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Sam Thayer. Uh, for more information, make sure you visit his website, uh, which is www.foragersharvest.com. Um, when you're there, he has a lot of the stuff he's even been talking about for sale on his website in addition to all his great books. Um, he's got hickory oil on there. They have like different fruit leathers, all sorts of stuff up there. Uh, you also have a really good Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com backslash Forger's Harvest. Um, 
Thank you guys for listening again to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pounders Nursery. And we will make sure that we share all those links on the website uh, when we post the uh, the episode of the podcast. We need to give a big, uh, huge shout out to Ecocentric Plastic Men for contributing our new theme music uh, to meet their guest episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery. Also, YouTube, we need nine more followers, people, to get nine more followers <laughs> to hit our number that we've been reaching for. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it and answer it on a future episode of The Buzz. We actually have a surprise. We got a few calls in for the next buzz and we're going to phone a friend yeah for an yep. answer so uh and let's not forget about our native plants healthy planet facebook group uh a ton of new members this week and it's the conversation's been wonderful yeah. so keep 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 it going yeah you can listen to native plants healthy planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com you can also check us out on apple Podcasts, podbean spotify stitcher really wherever you consume your podcast when you're there do us a favor leave a five-star review subscribe and definitely refer a friend because um, – and if you're going to refer a friend, this is a great episode to send definitely. them and say, hey, listen to this because there's a lot of great information coming out of there. Uh, last but not least, you can always listen to us on Alexa by saying, Alexa, play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Uh, Samuel, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. We we enjoyed every moment of this. Um, thank you again, everyone, uh, and we'll see you soon uh, coming up with uh, – with another buzz so until then keep it native thank you for listening to the native plants healthy planet podcast presented by pinelands nursery remember to like share follow and comment